Today's scripture comes from Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Now I rejoice my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. As we come to the end of this stewardship series, I wanted to just remind you as we start here what stewardship is. What does it mean? If you'll remember, stewardship means that God owns everything. Everything. And he gives it to us to steward or to manage. If you've ever been asked to house sit for someone for a weekend, then you understand what stewardship is. Somebody leaves town and they say, hey, will you come over and stay at our house and watch our house and take care of our house? That's, that's stewardship, right? You don't own the home. You've been asked to watch over it in the best interest of the one that owns the house, right? That's, that's stewardship. And so we've explored what that means in life, that we are stewards of the gospel, Right? The gospel doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God, but he gives it to us to steward and to spread and to share. We've looked at uh, stewarding relationships. Relationships don't belong to us. They belong to God, but he gives them to us to steward, primarily through forgiveness, reconciliation. We've looked at stewarding gifts. All the gifts we've been given, the spiritual gifts, they don't belong to us. They belong to God, but he gives them to us, and all of us have different ones to steward for his purposes, his plan. We've looked at stewarding uh, possessions, that everything we own, everything we have, ultimately belongs to God. He gives it to us to steward. And then we looked last week at stewarding money, that money belongs to God. He owns our money but he gives it to us to steward, right? And to move his kingdom forward. The one we're gonna look at today is probably the biggest head scratcher. And that is suffering. Because we typically don't think about suffering in terms of stewardship. We think about suffering in terms of how can I get out of this quickly? How can I remove this pain from my life? How can I get away from it? It hurts, it's painful. And yet the scriptures make it very clear that we're called to steward suffering, meaning that suffering belongs to God. It belongs to him, and then he sovereignly gives it to us at different seasons in our life to steward for his purposes, for his glory. So how do we do that? How do you steward your suffering for God's purposes, for God's glory? And to answer that question, we're going to look at the perspective for suffering, we're going to look at the resource for suffering and then the purpose of suffering. So let's start with the, the perspective for suffering. Look at verse 24. 
Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, lots of questions surface from this verse. Number one, what is lacking? Is Paul somehow saying that Christ's suffering and death on the cross wasn't quite complete, wasn't quite sufficient? What's, what exactly is lacking in Christ's afflictions? The second is, why is Paul rejoicing? And to answer both of those questions, we're going to look at two, what I'll call critical or important facets of having perspective for suffering. That is uh, the necessity of it and the privilege of it. I'll start with the, the necessity of suffering. What's lacking in Christ's afflictions? Now, clearly, Paul's not talking about Christ's suffering and death on the cross somehow being incomplete, somehow being insufficient. Why do we know that? Well, several verses earlier, verses 21 to 22 of Colossians 1, he says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This says that Jesus accomplished salvation. He accomplished it. You can't be presented holy and blameless if his sacrifice on the cross was somehow insufficient. So this is not speaking of Jesus' sufferings on the cross as being insufficient. No, Jesus fully accomplished your salvation on the cross. His sufferings were complete and sufficient in regards to your reconciliation. So then what is lacking? Well, the key to understand what is lacking is that phrase, in my flesh, that Paul says. That, that phrase, in my flesh, right? This is, uh, so in the, the Greek, which is the original language that the New Testament was written in, in my flesh shows up in a certain spot. So let me, let me reread verse 24, literally how it reads in the Greek, and it's gonna e explain what is lacking. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in my flesh for the sake of his body, that is the church. Right? It's not Christ's sufferings that were incomplete, but Christ's sufferings in Paul that were incomplete. And what, what Paul is describing here is that Salvation has been fully accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. That's clear in verses 21 and 22. But his salvation that has been accomplished now needs to be applied or spread throughout the world. So while salvation has been accomplished, salvation now accomplished needs to be spread throughout the world. And that happens through the sufferings of God's people. Salvation being spread or applied happens through the suffering of God's people. Now, why? Why is suffering necessary for this already accomplished salvation to be spread or to be applied to the world? Why is it necessary? Let me try to illustrate this with, with two examples. Consider the disease of cancer. Fair to say it's a disease that's ravaging our country and has been and is ravaging the world. I want you to imagine 
that someone finally comes up with a, a cure for cancer. Literally comes up with a cure, bottles it up in a pill. So you have this pill of, of, of cancer being cured. What would need to happen? Well, well, that would need to be communicated, marketed, spread, right, throughout the world for everyone that's, that's dying and suffering from cancer. Now, that probably wouldn't be very difficult. You wouldn't get a whole lot of resistance to that, right? I mean, here it is, the pill that's, that, that cures cancer. People would be clamoring for it. You wouldn't get people trying to shut it down. It would be, yes, let's spread it, bring it, right? Now, let me give you a different scenario. Consider the opioid crisis in our country that is ravaging our country. Opioids, prescription painkillers, are ravaging our country. In fact, in 2016 alone, over 42,000 people died of opioid overdoses. Now, one of the possible, in part, solutions to that problem, right, is stricter prescribing rules. Do you know that over the past decade, pharmaceutical companies have spent over $880 million dollars for lobbying and political contributions to help kill or weaken measures that would address this, this opioid crisis. Now, I share that because that is more in line or that's a picture of why suffering is necessary to bring the gospel to the world because there's an enemy, there's resistance, there's a devil who doesn't want the gospel to get to people whose lives are being ravaged by sin. There's resistance to that. And that resistance comes in the form of suffering. Think about uh, two armies that are on either side of a valley. And those armies come, come careening down the hill to fight. And where they meet, where that collision happens, what is there? There's bloodshed. There's fighting. There's resistance. This accomplished salvation, the gospel, that Jesus procured on the cross, right, is being spread to a world and to people whose lives are being ravaged by sin, but there is resistance to that. And Satan's resistance to the gospel being spread or applied comes in the form of a world that's hostile to it. And so suffering is the collision of the good of the gospel and the evil and brokenness of our world where the good of the gospel meets the evil and brokenness of our world, that's where suffering happens. There's resistance, there's hardship, there's bloodshed. That that's why suffering is necessary. In fact, this is depicted in Revelation chapter six, verses nine to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Suffering, martyrdom, bloodshed is necessary 
for this accomplished salvation to be applied, spread through the world. So as we think about the perspective for suffering, that's the first part of it, is that it's necessary. The second is that it's a privilege. Notice here, Paul says in verse 24, I rejoice. And notice what he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Not when I've gotten to the other side of it. I don't rejoice once I've gotten past it, but Paul says, I rejoice in the midst of it. Why? Well, he says in his letter to the Philippians in verse 29 of chapter one, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That, that verb, it has been granted, literally means to bestow generously to give generously. And so it reads that suffering is, is a gift that is given as a gift. How could that be? Well, in Acts chapter five, when Paul and his companions are beaten for speaking the name of Jesus, it says that as they, they were finally released, it says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Counted worthy. They're rejoicing. What an honor. What a privilege. It's Jesus. I am absolutely honored that you would choose me to bear your cross in this specific way. That's the perspective for suffering. The necessity of it, the privilege of it. And right now you should be saying, that's great. Easier said than done. That's why the second point is so particularly sweet. How do you steward your suffering? With perspective, but second, the power to embrace that perspective comes through the resource for suffering. Comes through the resource for suffering. So Paul is proclaiming the gospel here. He's proclaiming this accomplished salvation, this good news of Jesus, and it's gotten him thrown in prison. Okay, he's writing this from prison. He's suffering for having proclaimed the gospel that as he proclaims the gospel, it meets a hostile world, and boom, there you have a collision, and they're suffering. And, and in this case, it's, he's in jail. Note in verse 25 the stewardship that Paul talks about. He talks about this stewardship that's been given to him. Now, interesting, we're talking about stewarding suffering, but in verse 25, Paul talks about uh, receiving this stewardship of what? Making the word of God fully known. Right, that Paul has been given this announcement, this news, that's amazing. God said, I want you to steward it. And as he stewards it, which means proclaiming it, it entails suffering. And so the announcement that Paul's stewarding both causes his suffering, but it's also the resource for his suffering. What's the announcement? Well, verse 26, he calls the announcement the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Verse 27, 
He calls this mystery the greatest news the Gentiles could ever hear. So what is it? End of verse 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Most often in the New Testament, when Paul writes, he talks about believers being in Christ or the church being in Christ, you in Christ. But several times, and it's rare, but several times he talks about Christ in you. Now it's getting at the same thing, but the, the, the emphasis here is sweet. Christ in you means that Jesus Christ is so united with you that he represents you and identifies with you completely. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Several weeks ago, if you're in the foundations class, Kevin was explaining a, a word in Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, the word sympathize, which shows up in verse 15 when it says, for we do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus Christ, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now that word sympathize, saying that, that, that's saying that Jesus Christ can fully sympathize with your weaknesses. That word sympathize in the Greek, it's soon patheo. Patheo is the root word for suffering. In fact, it's the root word that appears here in Colossians 1.24 when it talks about Paul's suffering. Soon means with. So what it's saying is that Christ suffers with you. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus Christ, who is now at the right hand of God, remembers back to his time on earth when he suffered. And so now when you suffer, he says, oh yes, I know how that felt. I remember what that was like. That's not what it's describing. It says that Jesus Christ right now in the throne room of heaven at the right hand of God with a glorified body, still fully human and fully God, suffers with you. Now, I mentioned this to my wife, and she said, Keith, I get it. Kim is, has the, the gift of mercy, which means, and this is how she explained it. She said, Keith, when someone is suffering, I feel it in my gut. Jesus Christ feels your suffering in his gut. And that's not poetic language because he still has a gut. He's fully human. He is fully human at the right hand of the Father. And he, as the head of the body, feels it when his body suffers. When you sprain your ankle, your brain feels that. Jesus Christ, as the head of the body, feels your suffering. So that when the scriptures say that he intercedes for you continually before the Father, oh, what amazing intercession that is. He feels your pain. He feels your anxiety. He feels your despair. He feels it. Then he asks his father to give you exactly what you need in that moment 
because Jesus Christ feels it and knows it. That's what it means when it says that Christ is in you. When Paul writes in Romans 8 that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. He's moving on to now this, this second part of that phrase. So Christ in you, meaning he, can, he fully represents you. He fully identifies with you because he feels it as you're going through it. Now, at the right hand of the, the Father, but dwelling in you by the Holy Spirit, he now in you gives you what? Second part of the phrase, hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. When we use the word hope, we, we typically don't use it as it's used biblically. We talk about hope as wishful thinking, right? I hope to win the lottery. That's not how the Bible uses the word hope. In the scriptures, hope is not wishful thinking. It's not wishful thinking. It is certainty of the future that changes the way you live your life in the present. That's biblical hope. Certainty of the future that changes the way you live your life in the present. And because Christ is in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is that assurance that you are on your way to final glory where there's no more pain, no more sin, no more suffering, none of that. So Christ in you, the hope, the assurance that you're on your way to final glory. Let me try to explain this with two scenarios. I want you to imagine that you're lost at sea, on a boat, lost at sea in an awful storm. And you have someone from shore in the lighthouse, wherever it is, over the radio telling you what to do with your boat to navigate through this storm and navigate back to shore. That would be helpful, wouldn't it? That'd be really helpful to have someone speaking to you over the radio. Now imagine you're in uh, that same awful storm in that same boat lost at sea and a helicopter comes overhead and drops the person in your boat who then takes the wheel standing next to you with full confidence and full assurance and begins to navigate you and your boat back to shore safely. Jesus Christ doesn't speak into your sufferings from a distance from the throne room of heaven. Jesus Christ is in you by the power of the Holy Spirit that when you find yourself in the midst of suffering and pain and hardship, that he's in it with you. He's not on shore. He's not in heaven saying, hey, you're gonna get there. Just listen to me. Do what I tell you. No, he's inside you by the power of the Holy Spirit navigating you to glory and assuring you that you are headed to glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the resource for your suffering. So when we start with the perspective that it's necessary and it's a privilege Easier said than done. Jesus understands that. And that's why he said, no, I'm, I'm in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'm your resource. I feel your pain. I feel your despair. And I am your assurance that you are headed to final glory and that this current suffering is not ultimately what's gonna define you. 
And the beauty of it is, is that Jesus, as the resource for suffering, is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, still fully human, with the scars on his hands from his suffering on earth. How do you steward your suffering for God's glory? With the perspective of necessity and the perspective of privilege and the honor that it is to bear the cross in a specific way for your Savior. Second, with the resource of Christ in you, and then finally, with purpose. Now, what's the purpose of suffering? Look at verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. What's the purpose of suffering? Well, it's whatever that word this means, for this. Now, before I define that, let me define the other two words that follow. Paul says, I, I, I toil and struggle. He's ending in verse 29 where he started in verse 24. Verse 24, he starts with his sufferings. Verse 29, he ends with talking about those sufferings, except he calls it toil and struggling. The word toil means hard work. The word struggle, it means to strain, to strive. It's actually where we get the word agony. So Paul's saying, I, I, I strain, I agonize. Now, what does this look like in Paul's life? I'll give you an example. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 to 28. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Get the point here. Danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, you want a, a description of what happens when the good of the gospel collides with the evil and the hostility of the world, that's it. Because at that collision, there's hardship, there's struggle, there's bloodshed. And if you're living your life oriented towards Christ, if you're living your life making decisions based on Christ's word, if you're telling others about this glorious salvation, then this same resistance is gonna happen in your life. It may manifest differently. It may look different. It, it, may, be, it may be sickness. It may be health issues. It may be gossip. It may be slander. It may be parenting struggles. It may be marriage struggles, relationship struggles. It may be anxiety, depression. It might be hunger, loss of provision, evil, crime, resistance, hardship, struggle that happens when the good of the gospel collides with the hostility and the evil of our world. That is suffering. Now, for what purpose is it? Now, back to what Paul says. 
For this I toil and struggle. For this I suffer. What's the this? End of verse 28. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, what does mature mean? And the word for mature in, in Greek is teleos. And I, I tell you that because it's a word that's difficult to translate. Uh, depending on what translation you're looking at, it, may, it might say mature, it may say complete, it may say perfect. But it's really helpful to understand what that word for mature means when you look at how, uh, it, how the, the Greek translation, translation of the Old Testament, Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew, well, the Greek translation of that translates a Hebrew word. It uses that word teleos to translate a Hebrew word that, that is defined by wholehearted devotion to Christ. And so a working definition of that word for mature is this. The complete and undivided way in which a person with all one's positive and negative attributes is oriented toward Christ. So Paul says, I suffer, you suffer, that you and others would be moved towards wholehearted devotion to Jesus Christ, a life that orbits around Christ, that your suffering is certainly for your own growth, but the emphasis that Paul puts here is that it's for, it's for others, right? Verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Into verse 24, for the sake of the church. Verse 25, stewardship given to me for you. This for you, for you, that, that we steward our suffering for the sake of others. And Paul speaks into this several times in his letter to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6. He says this, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort in salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings we suffer. Right? What he's saying is that suffering is for someone else's salvation. Then we see in, in just a couple chapters later, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 11 to 12, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that, here's the purpose, the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So we, we steward suffering so that life and salvation can be brought to others that that's one of the major purposes behind suffering, and that is that this accomplished salvation, this gospel, would spread. And the scriptures say the, the way that spread or that advance or that application happens is through suffering. And so the question to ask, in your suffering currently, in your suffering in the past, in your suffering that will come in the future, are you stewarding it for the sake of life in someone else? Parents, are you stewarding your suffering for the life of your children? Friends, are you stewarding your suffering for the life of your friends? Are you stewarding your suffering for life and salvation in others? The purpose of suffering is the advance of the gospel. The irony of this is that Paul 
writes this from prison. He's in prison, which most of us, and we see it even in Philippians chapter one, by the way, and I'll get, I'll get there in a second, is that we, we hear Paul's in prison. Wouldn't that hinder the advance of the gospel? Right, Paul's in prison. How can ministry continue when the apostle Paul is in prison? The reason we think that way is because we all worship productivity and results and efficiency. And I can't think of something more polar opposite to results and productivity and efficiency than suffering. In fact, in Philippians 1, when Paul, he's, he's in prison, writing his letter to the Philippians, he tells them because he anticipates what they're thinking. The gospel is, is, is hindered. Paul, get out of prison. And Paul says, no, 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 let me tell you. that This is actually serving to advance the gospel. And he gives two reasons. He says, the, the entire imperial guard that's watching me knows why I'm here, and I've heard about Christ now. And then he says, and all the brothers and sisters Followers of Christ are now filled with this amazing boldness and this amazing, amazing courage to speak even more boldly about Christ because of what's happened to me. In other words, the gospel advances through suffering. It does, it does not advance through efficiency and performance and productivity, all the things that we tend to worship. God makes it clear, no, my gospel advances through suffering. If our salvation that was accomplished happened through the suffering of Jesus on the cross, then why would the application of this salvation be accomplished in any other way? The gospel advances through suffering as the good of the gospel collides with the evil and the hostility and the brokenness of our world. And so God says, when I sovereignly give you a season of pain and hurt and hardship and struggle, he says, I want you to have the right perspective that this is necessary and to be honored that I choose you to bear it. And because I know that's a lot to handle, I'm gonna give you the resource for it, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father with a human body, glorified body, who feels what you're feeling and is interceding for you. And that you would claim and embrace the purpose, which is, God, you have given this to me, certainly for my own growth, but for life and salvation in someone else as this gospel spreads around this world. Let's pray. Father, when we hear and think about how you handle suffering in your scriptures, it's astounding, it's amazing. Because you don't hold back on the perspective that we're supposed to have. And yet when we hear that perspective that it's, that it's necessary and that we're to be rejoicing because it's a privilege, that, that suffering is almost a gift that we're given and we say, how in the world are we supposed to take on that perspective? You understand how hard it is. So you give us Jesus, not just at a distance from the right hand of God in heaven, 
but you plant your son in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that Jesus living in us, feeling what we're feeling, you don't just tell us to get over it. You understand how hard it is to suffer. And so you intercede for us continually before your Father, sending exactly what we need at exactly the right time that we can stand firm and be comforted and be reminded and assured of the hope of glory, that we are on our way to glory, that Jesus, you are navigating us towards glory when all this pain and suffering and hurt and hardship and struggle will be gone. Father, would you make us a body? Would you make us a church that with perspective and with the amazing resource of Christ in you, the hope of glory, would you make us a church that stewards our suffering for your purposes? And that is to spread the gospel to others, that they would move towards wholehearted devotion to you, Jesus. And Father, as we close in worship, as we sing to you, would you sing to us as well by your Holy Spirit, reminding us of our promises that we have and reminding us of that sweet resource that we have of Jesus, you living in us. And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.